I, I just think what's really, really important as a teacher is you're not there to teach subjects, you're there to teach them about life. And I don't have any advanced degrees. Some of the professors, God bless them, they got more degrees than a thermometer. I don't, but I probably have a master's in life and, and, and hard knocks. And, you know, we're all going to have setbacks. They always say that no one stands so tall as when they stoop to help a child. And I think that's what we as teachers all need to do. Welcome to Living As You. I'm Patrick Quinn, a brain enthusiast, mental health advocate, and aspiring medical professional. And I'm here today to break down the stories behind the curtain, the moments of inspiration, the defining moments of our lives, and the shaping influences that have led inspiring leaders to live a life authentically to themselves. Our conversation this week is with Notre Dame business professor and original Keurig founder, Chris Stevens. Growing up in the Washington, D.C. area, Chris began his journey towards entrepreneurship and teaching through a love of basketball. Committing to play for the University of Notre Dame, the 1974 graduate was on the basketball team that ended the legendary 88-game winning streak by the powerful squad of John Wooden and UCLA. After getting his degree in economics, Chris went on to become a president at Anheuser-Busch and then helped create the famous single-service coffee product, Keurig. For 17 years, Chris worked at Keurig until his return to Notre Dame as an adjunct professor of business in 2012. A teacher to undergrads, graduate learners, and students of his established esteem program, Chris is famous for knowing everyone's name the first day of class and gifting out influential books on life development. Currently, Chris continues to teach classes at Notre Dame and further develop the Inspired Leadership Initiative. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Chris Stevens to the podcast. Hey there, Patrick. Chris, how are you? Fantastic. How are you holding up? I'm doing well. This is a pretty unbelievable day in our history. Yeah, it truly is. I didn't think that this day would ever come, but It'll be interesting to see how it all turns out. How are you and your family doing? We're doing great, all things considered. Um, yeah. You know, I have uh, five children, and my daughter, Riley, just had my first grandchild, and we were planning on heading out there for Thanksgiving and stuff, but we just pulled the plug on that. She lives in Boston. It's just uh, the whole travel thing is just way too crazy right now. Okay. Well, congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah, thank you. So, Chris, would love to begin before we dive into the topic of leadership or the Keurig or business problem solving, all these great things I can't wait to get to hit, I'd like to begin by diving into the game that changed college basketball history. <laughs> Bring me through the memory of knocking off UCLA's 88-game win streak in South Bend in 1974. Yeah, the Cliff Notes version of that is that when I played, you know, freshmen weren't eligible to play varsity. We had to have freshman teams. And so UCLA came to South Bend in 1971 in January, and we beat them. I think they'd won 30-some-odd games in a row then. Austin Carr had 46 points just before the three-point shot, too. And then they didn't lose again for three years until my senior year. And we went from being the worst team pretty much in college basketball in my sophomore year. 
because we had all kinds of injuries and people left the team. I started at center at six six, Kevin, Bill Walton, and guys like that. And uh, we, yeah, we went six and twenty, uh, lost on national TV ninety four to twenty nine, uh, and it was Digger's first year, and it was uh, we were kind of the laughing stock of college basketball. And then my junior year, we got it together, got and actually started off slow, but finished strong and actually got into the NIT. In those days, the NIT was a good tournament and uh, beat three ranked teams to get to the championship, lost the championship on a jump shot in overtime at the buzzer. And then my senior year, we started off uh, 11-0, and we were number two in the country, and UCLA was still undefeated, ranked number one in the country, and they came to our place. And, you know, Bill Walton had never lost a game, not high school, not freshman ball, not college, never lost a game. And so they got the lead at 70 to 59 with three minutes and 22 seconds left. And Coach Phelps called timeout and he pulled us over, made a couple of substitutions, made a big move of putting a freshman guard in and took out a freshman forward. And we decided to press them the entire, the entire way. And we scored the last 12 points of the game, including Dwight Clay hitting the famous jumper from the corner with 23 seconds to go and uh, end of their 88 game winning streak right where it began three years before. So, it was uh, great to be able to, to be a part of that. I didn't play much my senior year. So when I talk to people and they uh, say, hey, yeah, man, I remember you from that game. I say, hey, not unless you recognize the back of my head. So, but it was great. It was a, we had a great run. That's fantastic. Well, I can't even imagine what it was like walking into South Dining Hall that night or the day after and just the place erupted because that's, that's a pretty epic accomplishment, even being on the team. Of, of that caliber and taking down John Wooden's team. Yeah, no, I think, I think Dwight Clay's made a living speaking at banquets and stuff, being the guy that hit the, uh, the shot. It was the only shot he took in the second half, but they call him the Iceman, and they, rightfully so. But, you know, I was proud to be a part of that program. They, uh, we usually have reunions every five years or so where they trot us out at halftime, and Coach Trump says a few words, and then we head off. But uh, it's fun to have that in our scrapbook, for sure. So great. So after you, you graduate from Notre Dame, uh, if I recall, you, you had a degree in economics and had a lot of success in the classroom and obviously on the basketball court. And then you were able to establish a phenomenal career of servant leadership with Keurig. Would you mind diving into that story of how you got involved? And you're actually one of the three, if I, if I recall correctly, one of the three original developers of this product that has changed the world and allowed people to drink their coffee every day. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. Well, you've obviously done your homework well. I had, uh, after I got out of college, I had, since I didn't play much my senior year, uh, I went to Belgium and played a year of professional ball in Belgium and won a championship there. So that was kind of completion for me. Came back and started in sales. Uh, I didn't know, I was a foster kid, bounced around in a lot of bad homes and didn't have role models in business or anything like that. So I didn't know anything about business. Sales, Procter & Gamble had a great development plan and a career track. And so I started uh, $10,500 a year carrying a merchandising bag, going in and out of grocery stores in the Chicagoland area, and then got promoted to positions of increased responsibility in Pittsburgh, Detroit, Cincinnati, and then finally Boston. Then when it was time to go back to Cincinnati, I actually had a great opportunity to become president of an Anheuser-Busch distributorship in uh, Metro Boston. It was always fun being in the beer business, coming back for college reunions. People say, Hey man, what do you do? I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm an investment banker. It's like, Chris, what do you do? I said, I'm in the beer business. Come to think of it, I'm the only guy I know actually pursued his college major. <clears throat> but anyway, that was a lot of fun. And then, um, you know, ran a spirits, wine, and beer company. Then I met a couple of guys and I had a dream, and I believe in dreams. 
Walt Disney said, if you can dream it, you can do it. Marianne Rodmacher, stand often in the company of dreamers, for they believe you can do impossible things. The future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams, said Eleanor Roosevelt. So I believe in dreams, and, and I always wanted to kind of start something from scratch. And so these guys had a dream of changing the coffee world one cup at a time. And so in 1996, I took a flyer, sold our house with my five kids and my lovely wife and traded down use the equity to live off of because we couldn't afford to pay each other anything. And two years later, we launched Keurig in 1998 and uh, it was a pretty fun ride. Now I think it, they've got, you know, Keurig's about $14 billion business. They own Dr. Pepper. They own Krispy, Krispy Kreme donuts. They own all kinds of different things, squirt soft drinks, Canada dry. So they've be, be, really become a very, very successful company. But I decided eight years ago that I'd, done my thing in corporate life and I didn't quite agree with the direction that the company was going. And so Notre Dame gave me a chance to come back here to my alma mater and teach. And this is my ninth year of teaching, Pat. Congratulations. I bet Thanks. it's, I bet it's just an, a dream to be back on campus where you were so many years ago. Yeah. Be careful what you wish for. I have 235 students in three different classes. They're trying to kill the coffee man. One of, if I'm not mistaken, one of the biggest reasons you wanted to come back to South Bend was for the students. And a great quote that you said when you initially, right when you came back, was you wanted to help students not make the same stupid mistakes I made and to go follow their own dreams. How have you been able to help students follow their own dreams thus far throughout, yeah. through your classes and leadership? I, again, I didn't have a role model. I, I, I had a couple of good coaches and stuff, that, but when it came, if I think about my college experience, I basically raged my way through Notre Dame and didn't, you know, I, I finally took it seriously in my last two years in terms of academics, but if I was to do it all over again, I would have been a more conscientious student. I think in my freshman year, I had a 2.3. I was like Kevin in Home Alone. I made my family disappear. You know, so I, I wanted to make, ensure that I impressed upon freshmen and sophomores the importance of, of setting some goals. And on the first day of every class, I give my students a gift. And that gift is a book. And the book is called Five. Where do you want to be in five years? It was written by a guy named Dan Zadra, Z-A-D-R-A. And I found this before. And it's got all kinds of great motivational stories. You know, Jeff Bezos was living in a 500-square-foot apartment. And five years later, he's worth $10 billion after founding Amazon.com. Debbie Fields started Mrs. Fields Cookies right out of her kitchen in, in, in Salt Lake City, Utah. Doris Christopher started the Pampered Chef right out of her kitchen. So I try to find as, uh, there, as much about my students before the first day in class. So I write a personal note in the cover of the book and I gift wrap it to them. That's my gift to them. And over 4,800 books later, the author loves me. It's, it's, you know, it's like, where do you want to be in five years? And somebody once said, if you don't know where you're going, it doesn't matter much where you end up. And if you don't know where you're going, how are you going to know you arrived when you get there? So on the first day of every class of my principles and management class, I asked the question, students a question. Everybody here for uh, principles of management, raise your hand. They all, duh. And I say, you're in the wrong class. We're changing the name of the class to principles of leadership. You lead people. You manage affairs. You don't manage people. People don't need to be managed. They need to be inspired. So I try to do a lot of motivational things in my classes, and it's worked out pretty well. And who has been some of, some of those leaders, those inspirational leaders in your life? You talk about really being that mentor and that guiding figure, which I think is the, like one of the utmost of important things for teachers to be. As you mentioned, 
um, when you were younger, maybe you didn't have those figures. Who, who inspired you? Well, I think, uh, and I grew up in Washington, D.C. and played in the Catholic League there. And my high school coach, a gentleman named Joe Gallagher, who's since passed away of St. John's College High. And our arch rival was DeMatha High School, very well known, a great sports school. And Morgan Wooten was a head coach there. But Joe and Morgan used to run summer camps together for kids. And the players from the teams would be the, the, the staff of the camp. And so I had a chance to be around Coach Wooten a lot, too. So, so definitely Coach Gallagher and Coach Wooten. Uh, and then I think in business, we've, I've had different uh, business mentors that have been great. And Nick Lazaris, who was the CEO of Keurig, just an amazing man. One of the hardest working people and one of the people of the most highest integrity I've ever known was great uh, to me. And then I think, you know, I've, I've just met people along the way. Admiral Bill McRaven, who I've written in for president of the United States twice. He uh, was 36 years a Navy SEAL, rose to the top of SEAL operations worldwide. The mission that took out Osama bin Laden, he planned it, he led it. The Michigan that rescued Captain Phillips off that pirate ship, he planned it, he led it. So for the, those of you out there that are listening, he went to the University of Texas, and in 2014, they asked him to come back and give the commencement address. And I, I showed this commencement address. It's only 17 minutes long, and it's a game changer. And he talks about the top 10 things he learned about life, all of which took place in six months of Navy SEAL training, but are applicable to anybody, no, to anybody from any background, persuasion, ethnicity, so I think a guy like, you know, Bill McRaven, I admire it. I admire Colin Powell, who was head of the, the, the Gulf operations in the first Gulf War, then went on to become Secretary of State. So, you know, I, I admire John McClain. I mean, there's a guy who spent so many years in a, in a prison camp in Vietnam, but was, was a great American. So uh, this country has been built and founded on people who've been willing to pay, make the ultimate sacrifice. And I'm also inspired by my kids. One of my, one of my sons did four years in the Marines and did two tours of Iraq and was in the bad stuff. And uh, so when it comes to our military, all gave some, some gave all. I couldn't agree more. And please, the next time you, you see your son, give him a big hug of Thanksgiving from my family and from everyone. Thank him for his service. Amen. Thank you, Patrick. Of course. Can you talk about how kind of the story of you, you mentioned earlier, kind of bouncing around from foster home to foster home and learning a lot, especially like you're saying in college, being maybe all over the place, has shaped your own story and desire to give back to your students in the way that you have? Because as I was doing all my research on you, what stands out so much to me about you, and I've, I've been lucky to have some professors and teachers, is that you genuinely care. Like the class is the class and you're there to obviously teach students business management or um, about the subject, but fundamentally it's about crafting leaders for the future and, and being yeah. that mentor for your students. So I'd like to just hear a little more of the story of where that comes from and how your past. Yeah, I'm a big one on quotes and, you know, Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. And somebody once said, if you don't like change, you're going to love irrelevancy even less, but you know, the, the key thing about it is that business, anything in life is about people. And we all have pressures. We all have challenges. But, you know, respect is built up through hundreds of positive things and destroyed by one stupid one. And I think about Lou Holtz, the great football coach. And Lou had three rules for his football team. Be the best you can be. Just do the right thing. If you do the right thing, you don't have to remember what you lied about. And the final one was show people that you care. Show people that you care. And Maya Angelou said, if you remember what you said, if you remember what you did, everyone will remember how you made them feel. 
So before every class, I memorize the names of all of my students before the first class. And one semester I had 400 students. That was a chore. But at some point in the middle of the class, I'll put up slides with 50 pictures on it and say, okay, great class, who we got here? So I get to try to know them as well as I can. And while I have larger classes, I try to create a more of an intimate atmosphere where, um, where students get a chance to get in touch with maybe some feelings and emotions and dreams that they haven't been because they've been so busy. So my goal is not to teach them about management. My goal is to try to help prepare them for life. Can you tell me maybe a particular instance or interaction with a student in which you got to know um, them on a more personal level and one of their dreams and hopes that maybe they had cast by the wayside because of being in college and that the feeling of overwhelm. I've experienced that many times when you're floundered with info, but when they have someone like you to say, hey, let's put the blinders on, put all that to the side. What are you here for? Is there a specific story that comes to mind that's pretty memorable? Well, I think there's, there's quite a few. Um, I, again, I try to read my students and when they're struggling, and this has been Patrick, just an unbelievably hard semester. Uh, if you can envision the university where everyone has masks on virtually 24-7, certainly when they're outside they're of their dorm room, when they're in the classrooms. So the interaction is very different. Some of the classrooms, classes have to be cut in half, where half the students are in class on Monday and the other half are on Zoom. And then the next day it's flip-flop. You add to that that we had a tragic accident two weekends ago where two students uh, were killed, two young ladies were killed walking back from a party. And one of my former students, Eduardo, was with them, was critically injured, and he's still recovering in the hospital. But the Latino community is so tight here. And I mean, you think, what more can this happen? You've got the economy and people not being able to play sports that they came here to play. Um, you've got people that can't get jobs or internships. So. This is hard times, and now more than ever, students need someone to know that they care. So I, I was really, really blessed that one of the former players that I, I helped mentor, et cetera. In fact, he just got a job with Anheuser-Busch, and he was a starting player on, on the Notre Dame's football team for three years. And uh, he came in to my office just before he left campus and handed me his game jersey. I mean, oh, my gosh. So I just, you know, things like that that, that, that stay with you. Is, is are things that are really, really important to me. So I don't want to tell specific, you know, instances other than maybe that, but, you know, I've, I've had students that wanted to leave, wanted to quit and try to talk them through that. And a couple of instances, it was the right thing for them to do. And they did leave because the environment wasn't right for them. Uh, and it's not right for everybody. So I, I just think what's really, really important as a teacher is you're not there to teach subjects, you're there to teach them about life. And I don't have any advanced degrees. Some of the professors, God bless them, they got more degrees than a thermometer. But I, I don't. But I probably have a master's in life and, and, uh, and hard knocks. And, you know, we're all going to have setbacks. I, I lost my first wife to cancer after 27 years. And that Sorry. was hard for five kids. There were five teen suicides in our town, the you know, kids that we knew at the same time. And, uh, you know, so I tried as a father to help my kids through those difficult times, too. But uh, I think anybody who, they always say that no one stands so tall as when they stoop to help a child. And I think that's what we as teachers all need to do. Being a professor of life, I think that is, I mean, that's why we're, we're all professors of life in, in a sense. If we treated our professional worlds or even just our day-to-day -day life, think about like how much better this world would be. 
after you just kind of reflect on a lot, which I'm just so grateful to get a little into your mindset of what's been going on on campus, obviously not being there myself this semester. One of the things that you've done these past couple of years, which I think really exhibits the concept of being a professor of life so well, is I've heard you, you're famous for maybe emailing your students and saying, hey guys, no, no class today, or we're, we're taking a day, but your homework is go out in the community and do yeah. something for someone else. Can you tell me about that? I love that. Yeah, I do that at least twice a semester, uh, and particularly noteworthy, I think, this semester, because there's a lot of kids that are really hurting. And I just say, okay, today, tomorrow's service day. So my classes are at 7.35 in the morning for 75 minutes, 9.35. And then I have another class that I design on sports management, which I'd like to talk about a little bit at 12.45. But I, I just say, hey, today's service day. You got to go out and you don't have to do it exactly during the class time. But between now and then, you've got to go out and do something good. Go out of your way. It is impossible for you to sprinkle happiness on others and not get some on yourself. And they do. And then I say, just give me one paragraph by three o'clock on Sunday of what you did. And, you know, they, they go, they clean up the lakes uh, at St. Mary's and St. Joe. Uh, they help the ladies in the dorm take out the trash and clean up. They clean up their house where they normally wouldn't do it. They make cookies for their entire section. They take friends out to dinner. They reach out to freshmen that they previously didn't even know and, and try to help them. And, and I think what they talk about a lot of times is that they thought it was maybe kind of a silly thing to do to have it be an assignment. But what they find out was, is that they're totally impacted by it as well. I like that. I, I think when they leave here, I hope that they will be known not just for their athletic accomplishments or academic accomplishments or accomplishments in clubs, that they made this place a kinder place. Completely agree. And, and I think what you're doing right there with your students, allowing them to sprinkle in these, these pockets, these moments of small but powerful instances of joy and compassion and kindness and empathy. Like I believe in the power of the small action, even the smallest of things. You open a door for someone, you give someone a smile, give someone a high five, obviously, when, it's, uh, when we're not in this pandemic. And yeah. this all make a difference. And I, and I bet you've been able to see, again, the, that direct impact on the students and when that clicks that... I mean, if we all did that, one or two more small yeah. actions, it's pretty good. Yep. So there's a great African saying that if a thousand small people in a thousand small places did a thousand small things of kindness, it would change the world. And that's, I think, what we at Notre Dame, you know, Father Soren, when he found this place in 1842, said this college would be one of the most powerful means for doing good. And it's all over our website, et cetera. But these are difficult times in our world, and now more than ever, students need to be able to grow quickly into leadership positions and to make a difference. Women and uh, underserved minorities are still not getting anywhere near their fair share of opportunities. And so I, I try to impress upon them that, that whether you're a woman who wants to get into a position of leadership or you're a guy who gets in a position of leadership, you need to watch Sheryl Sandberg's TED Talk for 15 minutes on lean in and, and that we all need to do a better job of helping those who deserve equal rights get those equal rights. And it's still not happening in our country or in the world. And you've mentioned now multiple, some incredible TED Talks. <laughs> they're, they're amazing. I would like to transition a little into 
the concept of ethical and kind leadership. This is something I know you've thought about for many years. And can you touch upon your, your thoughts, your experience, obviously what you teach your students in regards to this type of leadership and taking this and being that advocate and that voice for other communities, whether it's minority communities, women, uh, people who have not received the, the gifts and the opportunities that we all should receive every day. Yeah, I, I think as part of teaching, you, you just have a duty to be able to inspire young people to, to reach for things that maybe they didn't even know they had the capacity to reach for. And I try to tell them, you know, try to get involved in as many different things as you can taste everything at the banquet table of this university. Because sometimes you find your passion, sometimes your passion finds you. And I'm a firm believer in Simon Sinek. And uh, if no one has ever seen his TED Talks, it's Simon Sinek, S-I-N-E-K. And he has a TED Talk that's about 18 minutes long on the golden circle. And what he found out about how the human brain actually makes decisions is that people don't buy what you're selling. They buy why you're selling it. They buy what you believe, what you stand for. And if you make their belief, your belief, you know, then, then they'll trust you. Then they'll become loyal. And he uses examples of Apple. Why is Apple so successful at everything that they do? Why did Dr. King become the spokesperson for the civil rights movement when there were plenty of other great orders in the day? And how did the Wright brothers, without even a college education, no money, conquer powered man flight? And it's because that they all had a belief and a, a cause that they stood for as opposed to just working for a paycheck. Um, he's also got a great one on empathy, that all great leaders need to have empathy um, and to be able to put yourself in other people's shoes. And I think if people just thought more in this connected world, Kids are connected, high school kids are connected to some kind of a device 11 and a half hours a day. Headphones, Instagram, Snapchat, OMG, LOL. And, and uh, you know, when you, this is the idea of a kid walking across campus now. Headphones on, head down, texting. And so I think one of the things that we need to do is to disconnect, uh, to get outside of our heads. And that's why I, I encourage them to get to a very special place on campus called the Cross in the Woods. And it's on the way to St. Mary's, and most people don't even know it's there. But you have the 12 stations of the cross that go from the bus stop up this hill. And then there's a life-size bronze of Jesus on the cross with Mary Magdalene and Mother Mary. Nice benches where you can sit. It's lit up at night, quiet in the trees. No one even knows it there. But I'll tell you what, if you can go to places like that and quiet the voices, that gives you the time to be able to create and to think and have empathy. And from that stillness, as you just mentioned, I think that's where leadership stems from, especially in this world where we're being distracted. There's more noise than ever before. Chris, what are a couple of those uh, characteristics of a leader that you think are more critical than ever before, especially in our time? Let me just add one other point, Patrick. And that is, I. so this is my ninth year of teaching. And I have the grade broken out into a group project, uh, homework, uh, midterm exam, final exam, and then I have a grade for class participation. And I basically say, if I, hey, I don't hear your voice, I can't give you a decent grade. I want you to learn, you need to learn how to speak up. And a lacrosse player sent me an email and she said, hey, professor, I am an introvert. And it just, I, it's very hard. I, when I think about speaking up in a class of 100 students, 
I literally start to get hives. And I, I'm sorry, I, I don't know how to qualify for class participation grade. Hey, take a look at this TED Talk. You might find it interesting. And it's a TED Talk by Susan Cain, C-A-I-N. And it's about the power of introverts. Over a third of the population would classify themselves as introverts, not shy. That shy is how you, you know, it's how you react to stimulus. And some of our great leaders, Eisenhower, Gandhi, you know, we're, we're introverts. And introvert just means that they don't need all the noise and stuff like that. They need to be able to think about things. And they do their best work by themselves. And so she talks about stop the madness of group work all the time, all the time. And, you know, it's, it's really, really important that we understand that we're all different, but we all bring different things to the table that add value. And I like the, the, the thought that as I've built teams over the years, I, I try to hire people with complementary skills. Somebody once said, if two people always agree in business, <laughs> one of them is unnecessary. And that includes making sure that I surround myself with thoughtful people that will hear something go on in the meeting and say, you know what, I, I, can I talk to you about that for a second? Someone who's willing to be able to help you understand the different pictures that may be uh, surrounding an issue. That right there is so big because it's looking at ourselves without comparison. And I know in my life, especially being at school for four years in Notre Dame at a place where there's people doing incredible things all over the place, right. um, that was always the struggle for me. And it wasn't until I started to recognize that that was leading me to feeling isolated and feeling oh, like I got to be working all the time as opposed to finding that stillness and that peace. When I recognize that, it's like, hey, we just kind of put that, release that comparison, put that to the side. Yeah. Like we can finally be. Yeah, and so I show that Susan Cain video to every single class now, and I did a confession after I watched that video the next class going, I am so sorry. So you can add value to this class and not say a word. Send me videos that you see that you think the class might enjoy. Find articles that you think might add value. And I get now almost 10 articles of videos a day from students who are thoughtful, who are adding value to the class. And some of them I show and I've never seen before in their game changers. So I just think giving everybody the opportunity to be able to shine in the way that they best can shine is really important. And how do leaders better do that, especially in a, a society that's very, there's one right way to do something. There's only one definition of success. Oh, if you're extroverted, if you're this, that's the, the thing that's going no, to. There's all kinds of different ways, but I didn't answer your question. So I will answer the question now. And I show a two and a half minute clip of Colin Powell, who again was head of the first Gulf War for America. 31 days we were there, mission accomplished, got out. And then he became secretary of state. I wrote him in for president because I would have rather had his leadership than somebody else's. And he's asked by a White House fellow at a press conference, General, with all your experience, what do you think are the real key ingredients of, of, uh, of creating and being a, a servant leader? And he doesn't even hesitate. He said, trust, trust. And then he goes on to explain why, you know, and he learned everything he learned was at Fort Benning in Georgia. And, and, and he talks about the importance of building trust. If leaders trust you, they will follow you anywhere. And if you violate that trust, boy, it, it, it takes a long time to rebuild that. I think, you know, integrity retained is invaluable. Integrity once lost is irretrievable. And I think we read in the papers or hear on the internet or the radio every single day, examples of leaders 
Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff was one of the great traders of Wall Street, made millions and millions. Why did he go off the deep end? Why did congressmen do things personally that compromised their integrity and stuff like that? So we all have this little voice that talks to us inside, all right? And you got to listen to it closely because it whispers very, very softly. And when you're going 65 on that two-lane road and that text comes in and you think, oh, I just got to answer that text. No, you don't. No, you don't. You got to listen to that voice that says, don't do that because you may get, you know, nailed on the road by another driver. So I think building trust is really, really important. Communication is absolutely key. But, uh, and honesty, I mean, people will see right, right through you, but building trust is the most important thing. And the way you do that in many ways, Dan Coyle's written a great book called The Culture Code. Uh, he also wrote a book before that called The Talent Code, Dan Coyle, C-O-Y-L-E. And he said, in order to build trust, leaders need to create an environment of vulnerability. And that doesn't mean, oh, I'm vulnerable. No, it means being able to share and open up and being honest with the shortcomings that you've got. And there's, there's, there's just a real need in our society for, I think, leaders to be more vulnerable because they will then be much more approachable and they will be trusted. The idea that vulnerability is a weakness, I think has been in our society for, for so long, especially with guys. And again, I think you and I've been very lucky thus far, again, have experienced this just a few years now at Notre Dame, to recognize that vulnerability is a strength. Because I feel like, in, at least in my life, when I share, hey, I'm going through this with someone else, or my own path of pain and adversity and struggle and, and ups and downs, it, that's relatable. People, again, they, they trust you more because I think it's easy to put up these false fronts. And this was, this was my impetus for even starting this podcast was walking around Notre Dame, like as a senior last fall. Like I always, I, one thing I do, and you've probably done this many times, but I go into North and, and South Dining Hall, and all, I think almost every day, I'd sit down with uh, someone I didn't know. I'd go up to someone, hey, my name is Patrick, mind if I take a seat with you? And I love doing that, because I love, I was away, I was able to meet so many people and hear so many individual stories. You would not believe the amount of people that when a stranger walks up to them and, and sits down, are willing to be vulnerable, because they yeah, don't have their yeah, friends really around. Interesting that you should say that. I help with recruiting with just about all the major teams, football, men's basketball, women's basketball, men's golf, women's golf. And I've met with over probably 250 prospects and their parents. And, you know, I try to be able to talk about how we teach here and a little bit about the Notre Dame. And I try to, I find their pictures all over the internet and stuff like that. It kind of weirds them out that this big fat dumpy guy in the business school is finding out about them. But one of the things I, I talked about is the, is the need to be able to, not get wrapped up in yourself. And I actually tell every single one of them, you gotta do me a favor. If there's one thing that you take out of this, when you walk in that lunchroom, people are gonna be going, hey man, there's Patrick Quinn, he's all American, great guy. But take a look around, as opposed to just sitting with your, your, your posse, take a look around and maybe that freshman at the end of the table who's by herself, maybe she's a little bit different or they came be maybe the nerdy science kid that is not really into sports and stuff. And you'd be the one to go down and do exactly what you do, Patrick, is introduce yourself and say, hey, how you doing? I'm Chris. What's your name? You mind if I join you for lunch today? Because what I tell them is to the world, you may be one person, but to one person, you may be the world. So I'm so glad that you did that because that's, that's how we help people that, that are maybe not exactly like the crowd feel like they're appreciated. And that vulnerability, to me, that's the glue between 
all of us. It's easy to look at someone who maybe you don't share an interest with or even values with, and it's easy to, to judge them and say, oh, I don't want to even get to know them or to stay away from me. But when we're vulnerable, we see we're not that different. We all we're going to make same. mistakes. We're going to make, how many mistakes have I made today? Already several. But, you know, Desmond Tutu once said, without forgiveness, there is no future. And a gentleman I got to know very well that I've done work for, for the Fetzer Institute, John Fetzer left his entire fortune, $400 million, he had no kids, to form the Fetzer Institute, whose mission is to foster awareness of the power of love and forgiveness in the emerging global community. And he says that love is the core ingredient that holds us all together. And so I think if we mess up, we need to be quick to forgive ourselves, but we also need to be we need to be quick to be able to forgive those who've hurt us sometimes um, because that's the best way that you can, you can cleanse your soul. And I think when you're able to do that, you feel like a cleanly washed car. You ever notice that how, when you, you wash your car, it just seems to drive better. That's the way for our hearts and our soul too. So if we carry around baggage and the anger and stuff like that, it's going to hold us back, not the other person. So I think that forgiveness is really, really an important part of growing up too. Absolutely. Love it. Chris, can you touch upon, um, some of some of the work, obviously, you've been so instrumental in instituting so many phenomenal corporations and, and leadership endeavors in this world. Can you touch upon the Inspired Leadership Initiative that you were able to start enacting a couple years ago and yeah. um, how you're trying to help grow these leaders and help individuals with their leadership? Right. I, I think if you think about it, we have a level of school or education for just about everybody. You got little kids that go to kindergarten and preschool, right? Then you got elementary school from one through six. You got middle school or junior high school for seven through nine. You got high school, junior college, college, grad schools, dental schools. But as people get older and maybe they finish their traditional career uh, at the age of 50, 55, if they want to go back and be in a stimulating academic environment with other people who are trying to do the same thing, there's no community for them to go to until Harvard started a program about 14 years ago. And theirs is very much project-based. Stanford then started their version about seven years ago. And when Father John, our president, and Jack Brennan, the chairman of the board, heard about these programs, they said, we need to do that at Notre Dame. So a fellow named Tom Schreier, who's a class of 84, I'm class of 74, they tapped us both on the shoulder and said, hey, can you put together this program? So the program is we invite up to 25 people to come to Notre Dame for an entire academic year. They don't have to be graduates of Notre Dame. In fact, we don't want all graduates. We want it very diverse. And we, we say that they must have completed their accomplished careers. It could be education, military law, business, insurance, finance, um, nonprofit. And they come, and with the help of a faculty advisor, they now get to choose to study what they want to, not for the grade, but for the learning. They audit two to four courses across the entire university. We designed a course called The Heart's Desire that's taught by Father Dan Grudy, an amazing guy who's now... Uh, on the board of trustees and a fellow of the university. And then we teach another course called The Great Books, Human Journey. So they take classes together, but they also do their own thing. And what happens is that they get to audit these classes and they add so much based on their life experiences to the dialogue in a class of 19, 20, 21 year olds. It's amazing. Spouses are invited to actively participate as well. We have the capacity for scholarship for people that we think uh, add value to the program, but don't have the financial means of being able to do it. So we had two cohorts in the last two years. We were scheduled to have a third start this fall, but because of COVID, we postponed that to the fall of next year. And, you know, we go through a period of discernment to try to help them figure out 
I mean, when you've been crushing up in, in the financial world for 35 years, you probably haven't thought about what it is that you really want to do from a, a personal standpoint. So it's been really successful. Um, we have an invitation to spiritual enrichment. We have a global component where we took the first cohort to Rome and Assisi and then the Holy Land. So it's a pretty neat program. And the fellows who go through it characterize it as life changing. And as you're talking about that, one thing that, that's coming to mind, just with generally the idea of leadership and this initiative that you've, you've really honed in on, is the idea of, of privilege and the idea of recognizing the gifts that we have in our life. And to me, that's, that's been the first step for me and then choosing, as you mentioned earlier, that action, that next step towards, okay, what am I gonna do with this? How can I be that, that voice in like Father Hesburgh? go out and Gandhi, be the change you wish to see in the world. How can we, Chris, how can we better under, number one, take that first step in understanding the gifts we have in that the fact that, yes, we've worked hard to get to where we are, but thousands, millions of people in our lives have sacrificed so that we are at the place that we are. Yeah, I think it's all about perspective. And I think getting involved in service, Shirley Chisholm, who was the first African-American elected congresswoman said, Service is the rent you pay for occupying the planet. Until we go in and actually do service ourselves, we can't appreciate how privileged we are. You know that it's over a billion people that live on less than $2.50 a, a, a day. Over 3 billion live on less than $10 a day. You know, there's over 25 million children in, in human trafficking situations right now. 3 billion people lack basic sanitation. So if you think about the world and in terms of where we're at, yeah, we, we're pretty privileged to have the resources and the opportunities that we do. But part of my mission is to try to help businesses have a why to them, have a cause, stand for something. And I invest only in businesses that, that do that. And if, if they do that, they can help change the world because business creates the wealth of the world. We need to do more. We need to support more. We need to give more. And I really think it's pretty cool when you take a look at some of the pro sports leagues, the professional golf tour, the NFL, the amount of money and resources that they provide to NFL charities or PGA charities. Uh, we need to do more of that. There's, there's a great quote that I think you, you said multiple times that you just alluded to that I wanted to ask you to just reflect on here. Business creates the wealth of the world, but there's more to the world than wealth. And I think that first part, a lot of people Oh, yeah, of course, business creates the wealth, but it's easy to forget that second part. It really is. And I love, like, for instance, when I work for Curie, they, we got bought by Green Mountain Coffee Roasters. Green Mountain Coffee Roasters, from the time that Bob Stiller started the company, committed 5% of its profits towards corporate social responsibility initiatives. They became the number one purchaser of fair trade coffee in the world. Fair trade meaning you're paying the farmers a much, much higher wage so that they can sustain themselves. We got 52 hours of paid time off to volunteer in the community. They didn't tell us what to do. We could go anywhere and do it. And I think having real servant leadership, there's so many companies that are doing great things like that. They do a day of service where they all go into the towns and cities in Chicago to schools and paint and, and rebuild things. We just need to do more of that. And I think at, at this point in our country's existence, we're a fractured society and you know, this is election day and goodness knows what it's going to be. But whatever happens here in terms of whomever gets elected, we need to get stronger at building, building coalition, rebuilding us back up to where we ought to be. Ultimately, when it's all said and done, or we, we each have a finite time 
on this earth. And I think as you've alluded to, there's a lot that we can get caught up in. There's a lot we can get lost in, especially in our mind. And as we look around, there's a lot of temptation to get caught up in wealth, money, power, prestige. But what to you on that last day of class each year, when you're with your students and you've been able to establish, you're a mentor for them for, for life. You're, you're a figure that you've got their back. What do you tell your students as you're releasing them, so to speak, into that next year or into the world um, yeah. after, after a great year of lessons from, from Chris Stevens? Yeah, I just think, actually it was Lou Holtz that said, when all is said and done, more is said than done. And so I, I try to help them create goals for what they want to achieve in that first summer for the careers. They will, they will have worked on those during the course of the year. And then I just let them know I'm here. I'm here during the good times, bad times, but you're always going to be a student of the coffee, man. And um, so if you need me, I'm here. And I'm right now writing, I probably in the last week have written 15 recommendations for study abroad semesters, three recommendations for med school. And when you write a med school recommendation, they usually apply to like 10 different schools. So it gets to be pretty tedious, but law school recommendations. And it's, it's nice. You know, this, this football player contacted me and he'd been kind of bounced around for a couple of years. Different pro camps would call him in and he didn't quite make it. And he said he was ready to get his life going again. And did I know anybody at Anheuser-Busch? I said, yes, I do. And he just got the job offer there last Saturday. So it feels good to be able to help them when, when they need help. And he'll never forget that. Neither will I. And Chris, I'll just leave you with one more question. If you knew that there was someone listening out there who's just battling adversity, I think we're all going through that, as you alluded to, it being one of the hardest semesters you've experienced in a lot of your students at Notre Dame. And hope, especially in this time, election being here, hope is, is there. But sometimes that candle is still burning but it's very dimly lit for, for people on this earth. What would, you, what would be your message to anyone struggling to find hope in this moment? Well, I, I think if, first of all, if you watch Admiral Bill McRaven's commencement address, if you just go to YouTube and type in Admiral McRaven, capital M-C, capital R-A-V-E-N, he's got 10 tips for life. He says that, you know, the motto of Texas is what starts here changes the world. He said, I kind of like that. He said, if you don't think you can change the world, let me tell you about some common people who did. And he tells a couple stories. He said, but if you want to change the world, I've got some tips for you that I learned along the way. And he provides these tips. And some of them are, one, make your bed every morning. We got in trouble to do it the right way. It'll give you your first sense of accomplishment and encouragement to be able to do more things. And even if you have a bad day, you'll come home to a bed that's made that you made. Find someone to help you paddle. We can't do it. All. There's no such thing as a self-made man or self-made woman. Find someone to support you. Have a buddy that you can trust and share goals. Set you know, dinner challenges. Hey, by, by March 1st, I'm going to get an internship in Chicago earning $15,000. You know, you set your goal and whoever does the best job, we buy dinner. Find someone. Don't be afraid of the sharks. You're going to get situations. You're going to be confronted by challenges along the way that are, are going to be hard. And you're going to run across some people that are going to be obstacles to you moving forward. You're going to have to deal with them. And you know what? Life is not fair. Sometimes you just end up as a sugar cookie. And he talks about, you can watch the video and you can learn what he says here. But sometimes life is just not fair. Bad things are going to happen to good people. Those three Latinos, um, students that were walking down the street, just minding their own business. Two of them are gone. Their families are shattered. And Eduardo is recovering. And 
you've got to be able to reach out to people. A good person is one who walks in the door when the rest of the world walks out. So I think if you just keep your hope, write things down, own your goals, share them with people, challenge yourself to be able to help somebody, and most importantly, just do good for others. If you do good for others, good things will happen for you. Thank you for the conversation. And just just the opportunity to, to speak with you and hear some of your wisdom you're passing on here. Well, thanks for reaching out, Patrick. I appreciate it. You're a classy young man. You're going to do great. Our music today was created by current freelance producer and editor Bruno Jimenez Duelde. You can find more of Bruno's music at brunohd.com or check out his latest work on Spotify. Our unsung hero this week is the biggest Notre Dame fan I know, my grandpa. Jerry Quinn. Known for his legendary hugs, love of outdoor adventures, and passion for all things Notre Dame, my grandpa recently passed away due to health challenges about a week and a half ago. Thank you, Grandpa, for all your wisdom, stories, and laughter over the years. Getting to spend 23 years with you on this earth was one of the greatest gifts of my life. I love you so much and look forward to giving you a big hug again one day. Go Irish! And until we meet again, don't forget to keep living as you.